Caregiving is not something that we get to avoid, right? It happens as a natural progression in every family at every stage. So stop living in the head in the sand like, oh, that's not going to happen to me, right? It does happen. It happens to every family. Hi, I'm Bobby. After being a caregiver for my father-in-law and understanding firsthand how difficult it is to be a caregiver, I decided I wanted to support caregivers the best I could. I'm now a certified caregiving consultant, an educator, a caregiver support group leader, and an international speaker on caregiving issues. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here, we focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two And we all know laughter is the best medicine. Don't forget the wine, Mike. Won't forget your wine. Nope, never, never, never. In the past, we've talked to youth caregivers, long-distance caregivers, and even some sandwich caregivers. Absolutely. And just as there's something called mixed dementia, where somebody might have Alzheimer's and vascular dementia or Lewy body and FTD... As more and more people are becoming caregivers, we're now having what we're called uh, mixed caregivers. And those are the sandwich generation and those who may have taken care of a parent and now taking care of a spouse. And a perfect example of that is today's guest who comes to us from California and has the distinction of being a former youth caregiver for her father, a long-distance caregiver for her grandfather, grandmother, mother, and adult brother, while raising her young daughter, which also made her a sandwich caregiver. She combines her 30-plus years of caregiving and 20-plus years of corporate project management and leadership development to support a community of girls and women caregivers. She is passionate about working with youth caregivers and Gen X women in navigating the caregiving journey with joy as their compass and love as their guide. Let's welcome Deborah Harlow. Deborah, thank you for being here. Hello. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so delighted to be here with you both. Well, we know that our listeners want to hear something about your history as a mixed caregiver. And I am also very interested in working with Gen X women. We've had millennial caregivers on here, but I don't think that we've actually talked with anybody about Gen X. Okay, well, I'm that demographic for you then. <laughs> what is Gen X? I mean, um, some people may not even know who that refers to. I mean, if you ask somebody what's baby boomer, they'd be like, well, I think it's my mom, but I don't know what the year gap is, right? So you're a child of the 80s is definitely that you are a Gen Xer. So I was born in 1974. I'll be 47 this year. Uh, And so just generation wise, we're in that gap where our parents are either retired or becoming retired or potentially looking at however old your parents are needing care. Um, And then you also potentially have children at home in some age gap. So you're sandwiched on either side of of caregiving. Some might be medical caregiving and some might be parenting. And in some capacities, it's the flip-flop where you're helping with your parents, but your child has an illness. So that sandwich phase for Gen X has been growing exponentially, especially during the transitions of what the pandemic has presented for families. The mass people who left the workforce during the pandemic were women, and they were making those decisions to be at home for homeschooling and caregiving. 
And when they pulled the ages of them, the mass majority also were Gen and X. That's exactly the group that I had in mind when I prepared the um, presentation, prepare to care what every adult needs to know about uh, Alzheimer's and dementia before and after it strikes home, to teach them that you don't know what's coming <laughs> and it's coming and it's coming fast. And mm -hmm. the more you can prepare, the better off it's going to be. Our daughter, Kelly, who is in that age range, um, and her friends loved hearing what I had to say and were very encouraging that, yes, our parents are, you know, entering that demographic and we do have children at home. But they're also very, very busy and adding something else to their plate kind of held a number of them back from, you know, actively participating in learning about these things. But I think in some weird way, the pandemic and their being at home and our using Zoom meetings and something like this is, is helping to overcome that a bit. Have you found that? Yes, and yes, and yes, <laughs> to all of those variables. So um, I am of the generation where we are spread so thin, right? We're pulled in so many different directions in, in the sandwich, right? Imagine being in the middle of a sandwich on each side. There are people with needs, with personalities, with intricacies, with all the things. And you're the one in the middle that everybody's coming to. So yes, adding something to the list is like, no, the sandwich <laughs> is full. <laughs> I don't need that avocado. I'm good. No, I know that avocado is tasty and healthy and it's a good fat, but I don't want it right now. <laughs> and that's kind of how it feels sometimes that even though, you know, preparing for caregiving and having the tough talks with your loved ones is beneficial, but it's kind of like almost like exercise, right? Yes, it's good for me, but I'm so tired. I don't want to go do that right now. So it's finding that internal courage to take just a little teeny baby step in the planning versus like, oh, I got to go have the big talk or oh, I got to sit down and do all the paperwork or I got to go do all the things, right? Compartmentalizing teeny small progressive steps. Minimum, being aware that it's coming, that caregiving is not something that we get to avoid, right? It happens as a natural progression in every, every family at every stage. So stop living in the head in the sand, like, oh, that's not going to happen to me, right? It does happen. It happens to every family. Um, the other piece about the pandemic is, yes, when we all went into being in our doors, it was kind of an awakening, if you will, as to, yes, everything shifted and it created time and space for certain other things to come in, such as Zoom conversations or having different conversations. Maybe we previously said we didn't have time for because we were running errands or going to the mall or taking our kids to soccer or whatever it was. Um, so I've noticed that during this time, I've been home now for over a year. I have had more time to have conversations with people that maybe wouldn't have happened before. And while we've always had virtual capacity, whether it be phone or Zoom or anything, um, it was always like, oh, I'll do that conversation in person, right? But when we were forced to all assimilate into using Zoom, including my mother, it was like, oh, okay, we can have some of these conversations. We can have some of these difficult talks using the technology because at that point, that was the only option. So in, in regards to the pandemic, that became a blessing that we were forced to look at things through a different lens. I was able to listen to your presentation at the um, caregiver conference in Chicago when you talk about youth caregivers and teen caregivers, and you were one, and your daughter also. So yeah. as I mentioned before, 
can you give our listeners an overview of all of this caregiving that <laughs> that you've done you know I've earned a few stars on the wall of life right so um my father was a professional chef and so we've lived all around the world and so I kind of had the lens or experience of being able to to assimilate when change happens because it was regularly packing up and moving. So I had that as um, a tool belt thing. Uh, And then when I was just about to turn 12, my dad had a massive stroke and it was so massive that the doctors told my mom, he has six weeks to live. You need to prepare yourself to be a widow and plan accordingly. It was very shocking, very jarring the way it all kind of went down. We had just moved to San Francisco Bay area, which is very expensive. We also um, didn't have any family or friends. So we had no community to plug into when we were in the midst of that crisis. So it was just the four of us. And my mom suddenly had the burden of becoming the primary breadwinner for a family of four with a husband who has full illness and full needs. And so the dynamic was my mom just kind of pivoted and turned to me and said, you're the oldest. So this is what we need to do. You need to drop out of public school. You need to be the person who helps take care of the things. And we're just going to do our best. And there was no like anger or, or blame. It was everybody just kind of went like, Ooh, okay, this is big. We need to do what we need to do now along the way. Did it get to be stressful and, and have attitudes and all the feelings? Of course, because my dad is stubborn and he survived 12 years needing full-time care not the six weeks the doctors thought, 12 years of full-time care. Well, apparently they had some very good caregivers. (laughs) (laughs) My poor dad being a foodie. And I was like, dad, well, now you have to eat this healthy food. And he's like, don't you dare put that in front of me. You know, so we had that little battle going on, right? (laughs) But thankfully I'm, I'm cut from the cloth of my dad. So I can hold my own when he got sassy with me about meds or all the things. Um, but you know, I dove into this, uh, without any prep, which I think sometimes happens for families. My dad wasn't of the age that he was thinking he was going to be sick, right? He was very young. He was in his fifties. So it wasn't like we had had plans about what to do. It also wasn't that I was an adult child planning for caregiving, right? So this can happen, um, out of left field. And then you're left diving straight into surviving and thriving without any prep, without any conversation. And so we kind of struggled and learned along the way. Well, I think that happens to a lot of caregivers. Um, I'd like to say we're all fine until we're not. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, when, when we came into this world, we had talked about a time coming when one or more of our parents might need assistance and how we would accommodate in them in our home. But we didn't expect it to, to happen before we had planned. We thought we had time. Yeah. And then the call came, you know, who's going to take care of Roger? And, and this is going, this is something that we're going to do. Having no idea what we were getting into at the, you know, at that point, I, Mike and I talked about, sure, it's going to be difficult from time to time, but, but we've got this. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I compare it now to walking into a brick wall because there was, n- there was no preparation. There was no understanding of the illnesses or what we were going to walk into. And that happens so often with, with care. I mean, even this past year, our son-in-law had a horrific bike versus car accident, Ooh. and he needed weeks of mm-hmm. care. 
Um, certainly his, his wife and, and our two granddaughters were not prepared for that. So it can happen to any right. of us at any time. Most definitely. Uh, and that, that I think speaks into when you initially were saying you were talking to Gen X women and this capacity of saying, well, that's a tomorrow project, right? And the ethereal land of tomorrow where all things happen on time perfectly, right? <laughs> well, tomorrow sometimes doesn't show up in the way that we want. So today is as good as any day. And we might as well at least start having some awareness and some conversations. Um, so yeah, that was my experience. And, um, you know, trial by fire and be thrown into the deep end and learn how to swim while piranhas are nipping at your feet. That was kind of what caregiving was for the period of age 12 to 24. Um, and at 24, my father passed away. And then it was this, who am I? I'm 24. I've been a caregiver for the bulk of my development of my life. What do I want to do? I'm now expressing wanting to go to college. You know, all my friends already graduated from college. So it was this weird kind of, where do I fit into life? And as I was in the career space, corporate wise and going to school, then my grandfather got sick. And so then it was in my millennial age, right? So the twenties, and then I was caregiving um, from San Francisco with my grandparents in Sacramento. So I drive up on weekends and care to give my mom a break and then drive back to San Francisco during the week. So I've been plugged into caregiving at almost every stage of, of my life and have real compassion and empathy and sympathy for every individual when, when they're in those stages. You had made the statement and Maybe I misunderstood, but when your dad got sick, you left school? I did. So I did. Um, I went from being in school to doing homeschooling. So I homeschooled myself. And that meant I was teaching myself school. I was caregiving for my father. And he was a diabetic. So I was doing insulin shots. I was doing blood work. I was doing medicine. I was reteaching him how to read and write because the stroke had taken those of him. I was cooking and cleaning in the house. And I was also making sure that my younger brother got to school, did his homework, did all the things. So I went from 12 to adults overnight while teaching myself homeschooling to, uh, to, to continue on. And then afterwards you went on and studied psychology, sociology, and nursing, correct? That is right. That's what I did in my um, adult twenties when my father had passed away. And how has that helped you in doing what you do now? I think it's been incredibly instrumental to understand the other side of the picture, right? So we have the human lived experience that gives us compassion and empathy, and then the study of the things and understanding the emotions, the neuroscience, those pieces, and even just the practical knowledge in nursing has been beneficial because it kind of brought the wholeness of the picture for me when I'm um, either present with a person who's the caregiver, or I'm just being another human being with a person who's in the journey. I can either um, share awareness or information or sometimes just compassion because I understand the scope of how it's all of those needs, right? We have the medical, we have the emotional, we have the psychological, and we have the sociological, which is how do our communities support caregivers? And sadly, communities often don't, they're ill-equipped to. So I felt like my education was the missing piece that uh, was the nice balance to my lived experience as a caregiver. How do you at this point in time, outreach to these families that need help? What often comes my way, if you will, is that um, I'm also a certified mediator in the state of California, and I've chosen not to go into law as in, you know, 
bankruptcy law or mediation in that regard, but I use it as a tool is in conflict resolution and in just family negotiations where conversation can be challenging. So that's what comes my way a lot of times is when people are in the planning phase or trying to figure out some of these pieces of caregiving, I can come in and help them navigate um, difficult conversations by utilizing that tool. And then I also do a lot of mother-daughter work. So I work with mothers and daughters of all ages, including adult children and their parents, and in navigating some of these um, more deeper-seated emotional and relationship challenges that sometimes prohibit us from being able to step forward in caregiving in the way we'd like to. Well, one of the saddest parts of, you know, dealing with people that have long-term issues and some of them long-term fatal diseases like the dementias are, families get torn apart uh, when you have siblings who have very different ideas on how things should be handled. And I can only imagine that uh, having someone like you to help them sort that out can really be a benefit because I see it all the time on caregiver support groups and in messaging how families end up fighting and cannot understand or come together on something that everybody agrees on. I was very fortunate during the time when my mother was extremely ill and uh, in palliative care that my three brothers and my sister and I were we were all either nodding our head yes or shaking our head no at exactly the same time. We didn't have that issue, but I think that's pretty rare, unfortunately. That's very rare. And you were blessed, so I'm glad to hear that you did have that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. What are some of the most difficult issues that come up that you help people deal with? I, I think you alluded to one of them very beautifully, and that's perspective. So having the, the, the patience, the compassion, the capacity to look at the other perspective of someone, either the person you're caring for or the shared responsibility with your, your, your brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, the community. If nothing else, it gives you the capacity to see that there's a lot of different ways at looking at this circumstance. And so perspective giving yourself that gift is one of the most empowering experiences. And, and often people resist it because they're so entrenched in this is what it means to be me in this moment, in this trauma or in this stress. Um, and, and when I work with them and we talk about, well, what if you just tilted yourself a little bit to look at it from the vantage point of your brother or your husband or whomever is involved? Um, and there's no right or wrong in that as well. So there's no judgment. And when they shift into that, there's almost like a sense of ease in their bodies. You can notice it and then like, oh, okay. I guess I'd never thought of it that way. It's like, totally understand. That's why we're doing this exercise. <laughs> so perspective is incredibly powerful. You, you mentioned that you, you help with the difficult conversations. And probably the most difficult conversation is the end of life or close to the end of life planning. Can you give any tips on how to broach the subject? I know people just, I don't want to deal with that right now. I don't want to talk about me dying. Can you give any tips to our listeners on how to begin those types of difficult conversations? Well, before Deborah answers that, I also want to mention, um, it's not necessarily the the person who doesn't want to talk about their dying, yeah. but in, in our particular situation, our daughter Kelly absolutely refuses to consider the fact that her mother right. will not be here one day. And when I try to talk to her about, you know, being prepared because 
you're everybody's fine until they're not she just shuts down uh both of you are absolutely spot on <laughs> with all the things right so um when we talk about death it brings all sorts of emotions right it feels final it feels scary it, it feels like we're going to have a lack of that person being there. We start to think about all the things that we're going to miss out on, right? It brings up all of the, the lack and the scarcity and the missing. And, and that's why people resist it. it. But what's interesting is we can't avoid death. It's, it's part of the cycle. So the more that we can start to have conversations, um, including the difficult ones, is to start to kind of also frame it in a sacred way. And this is what a lot of other cultures do. When someone passes on, it's actually a sacred transitional part of life. And so, for example, my daughter is now nine. And when her great-grandmother, my grandmother passed away, we had conversations about that. We had conversations about what would you like to celebrate about grandma's great grandma's life? What would you like to celebrate about the impact you had in her life or how you brought joy to her? And so we talked about death as always going to be part of the story and how do we celebrate leading up to it? And the more that we can start to kind of have the conversations in a reframe like that, it starts to ease people a little bit into it. And the more that you can create ease and add in a little bit of, of joy and a little bit of honor and a little bit of sacredness, it makes the process a little bit easier. And it doesn't mean that even with those things, people go running straight into like, yay, we're now going to have death talk. You know, it's not like that. <laughs> <What>? So um, <laughs> I want to be clear that people aren't skipping down the, the field of daisies with me in this, but occasionally we get to a point of reverence and we get to a point of, okay, I can speak into this that I don't want you to pass and I'm going to miss you. However, I want to make sure that the experience of the time that we have together is the most beautiful. And so how can I celebrate in that with you? How can I create a beautiful transition to that point? And, and, and then it becomes collaborative versus you leaving me. And it's just a process that takes time and getting people who are willing to engage in that. And um, that's to me, some of the most beautiful work that I get to do is when I see people shift into that openness to, to co-create with their loved one, a way of, of, you know, going through a challenging situation. Another part of death that caregivers deal with is feeling that they want it to be over. Everything has become so difficult both for the family member needing care and for the caregiver. And there comes the time when you think, I just want it to be done, which is followed by a tremendous amount of guilt because it's almost like you're wishing for the person to die. But in effect, what you're wishing for is mm -hmm. the pain to stop. Is that something that you deal with as part of dealing with families? Does that issue come up? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, especially if you're dealing with long-term caregiving, right? So if you're dealing with somebody, um, you know, in my capacity, my father was needing full-time care for 12 years and we have individuals that care for 20 years or even longer. Absolutely. So imagine that in that journey or not even imagine, just embrace and accept it in that journey. You're going to have days where you're like, I really want to be released from this burden. I really want to be released from this um, pain of caregiving. I really want to be released from the pain of seeing my loved one suffer. And, and that's another part that in our culture, especially in the Western world, we don't really create space for, we don't create space for having the difficult talks. We don't create space for the uncomfortable um, emotions, right? Grief and anger and shame. And it's like, Ooh, shift that to the side. But if you create space to say, 
I'm, I'm feeling like I want to be done with this, not done with you, but I want to be done with this. And I'm going to just sit in that for right now because it needs to be witnessed. It needs to be expressed. It needs to know that it's okay to feel that way. Then, then, then you can shift back into like, okay, I had that moment. I feel a bit better. I'm going to get back into what I'm doing. It's when we suppress it and try and hide it, then it becomes toxic. And so again, this is having the tools for healthy conversations. I think you expressed it beautifully when you said, it's not that I want to be done with you. I want to be done yes. with this. It's the same thing that comes up. And yes. I'm going to use that. Please do. I'm going to use it. You can say, I heard Deb say this once. So, you know, it's the oh. same thing with my oh, daughter. Wait, you want credit too? I heard no, no, Deb. No, 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 no. I don't own words. So you may use that at, to, to all free will. No, just I'm in our conversation here. So thank you, Mike, for, for pointing that out. So, um, you know, same thing within parenting that, you know, we're very clear, my husband and I with our daughter and saying, okay, we love you. We're not happy with this behavior if it's a, you know, a parenting moment. So that behavior is not okay in this household. You are unconditionally loved. And so then we can separate the individual from the experience. And that also helps as a caregiver in any guilt or, or, or stress that you might be feeling is that your love of the individual is in its own sacred container from the experience of the illness. Man, you, I think you have provided so much information. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, having had all of this experience as a caregiver over so many years, you've embraced it and you've learned from it and you're taking the opportunity to share it. And the way you express it, I think, helps people understand that their feelings are normal yes. and natural. Yes, it's okay to feel the way you feel. If you don't, feel. we should talk because I'm worried. Right. <laughs> That's probably a better way. Like if you're walking around saying caregiving was a very joyful experience. I never had a bad day. I was always happy for the change in my life. I'm going to be like, okay, we got to talk because you got some suppressed stuff going on. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Because that's not real because realness is saying some days I had a beautiful moment with my loved one, even in the role of caregiving. And then the next day or the next hour, you're like, this sucks. I need to step out. I can't handle. And both are true and both are real and both are accepted and honored. And, and that's one of the problems that I had when people would look at me and say, oh, you must be a saint because I would, I am not saintly. I am not, I am definitely human. But I almost felt that was like saying, you have to be somebody very special in order to do this. When it, the fact of the matter is, it's everyday men and women doing the best they can in the moment. Hey, I mean, you've actually given such powerful voice to why caregiving becomes such a challenge. Culturally, we view it as this like, well, if you're caring for someone, you either are a nurse or you're saintly or you're so, it's like, no, caregiving is a part of life, just like getting up and brushing my teeth. So if we stop um, putting it on a pedestal, if we stop putting it into this other realm of down the road, somebody else, I have to be a certain way to be that person. We start to embrace it as this is part of the circle of life. This is part of me showing up in the relationship with the people that I care about. So I'm going to prepare accordingly because I know it's coming. And, and that's what it really comes down to. Well, I think... Um... We've had a very, very fruitful and interesting conversation. <laughs> um, I know I've learned a few things. Uh, I think Bobby has. Well, I, I learn from caregivers every single day. And and uh, every caregiver that you come across is has information and insights that you don't have. 
teaching and learning from each other is is a definite uh, reason why we do what we do. One of the things that came to mind for me that I wrote down was figuring out what you would like to do to celebrate that person. Right. Yes. Um, I wrote that down also, but I really liked her comment about love is in a separate container than the experience. And I know when our kids were growing up, you said, you know, I love you, but I really am not happy with your behavior or X that you just did. And I remember you saying that so, so many times <laughs> um, to, to the kids. Um, but also she said it, it needs to be a collaboration. That having that conversation is a collaboration um, to get to the end point and ha- that the care recipient now has a say. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I really liked that comment. Beautiful. And also appreciating the perspective of the other person. And we saw, we talked a little bit about that when we had a guest on um, who had written a book called Sister Shove because she and her sister came came to caregiving for their mother from very different views. One was a physician, very pragmatic, and one was more spiritual mm-hmm. and emotional. Uh, but they found right. a way to do it. Both are important, right? It's 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 all the sides, and when we can honor that, it actually also relieves some of the the pressure of having to do it all and be it all, right? So welcoming in all perspectives, right? right. So again, thank you so much for being here. We learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners benefited a great deal. You can find more information about Deborah on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby, and I'm Mike, and we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes or the Roger That Facebook page and post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. If you would like your identity to remain private, you can direct message your question on Facebook and we will answer. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that, dot show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master. And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and all those in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company.